You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot the podcast playground. Welcome to the Taking a Walk podcast. Music history on foot. You can find the podcast on Apple, Spotify, the Podcast Playground, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode with your host Buzz Knight has a guest who's been in the middle of music history his entire career. Danny Goldberg is the president of Gold Village Entertainment. His career accomplishments include personal manager, label president, author, and public relations man. Danny Goldberg is Buzz Knight's guest on Taking a Walk next. Well, Danny, thank you so much for uh, being on the Taking a Walk podcast. We are at your uh, palatial home office here in uh, midtown Manhattan. I was the idiot that said to Danny, hey, Danny, maybe we could take a walk on a side street. And Danny goes, yeah, but I'm right around the corner from Penn Station. There's yeah. no quiet side street. That is true. This is a noisy neighborhood, but this has been a good office for me these last few years. It's near all the trains. Perfect. So when did you realize you were first hooked in your life on music? Do you remember that moment? Um, I think it was, um, I think it was in high school, uh, I was walking down the corridor and in those days it was just the beginning of portable record players and a kid who I didn't know that well, who was a year older than me says, you've got to listen to this. And it was a ballad of a thin man, uh, by Dylan on the album highway 61 that just had come out with the famous tagline, something is happening here and you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones? And, uh, 
That was quite a quite a moment uh, that 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 a, that a record could uh, have so much uh, emotional and intellectual depth. You know, it wasn't just something to sing along to or party to. So that was certainly a key moment. Uh, you know, in terms of my love affair with 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 uh, rock and roll. Um, I mean, uh, I, I I also. The summer before, I had, I had heard Steve, Phil Oakes' song, Love Me, Love Me, I'm a Liberal, and that was also uh, quite an eye-opener for me. So those, those were probably the two important moments. And then a third moment was the first time I ever smoked pot. And I remember to this day, which is, this is all 1965, fall of 65, basically, the records that were played at the party it was the Love and Spoonful Daydream it was Out of Our Heads by the Rolling Stones Rubber Soul by the Beatles so so that group of moments is clustered together in my teenage memories but uh, one or more of those were the when I fell in love with the culture I didn't know at that time I was going to be able to make a living through that passion but I knew I had the passion and it is uh, quite a coincidence that on this day that we're recording this podcast, it happens to be Bob Dylan's birthday. 82nd so. birthday. God bless him. Right. So your leadership skills throughout your career have been quite impressive. Uh, who shaped your leadership skills? Um, well, um, I had a couple of a few different bosses that were role models in different ways. Um, the first that comes to mind would have been Lee Salters, who was a, a PR guy extraordinaire of the previous generation. And when I was 22, I got a job being kind of a long-haired rock publicist in a company where they had Barbara Streisand and Frank Sinatra and Broadway shows. And you know, he was, he, he, you know, his heyday was really the 40s and the 50s. But he was really understood the mindset of the news media. And the idea that uh, to get anyone's attention in a press release, he always said that no one's going to read the second paragraph if they're not interested in the first paragraph. And within the first paragraph, no one's going to read the second sentence if they're not interested in the first sentence. He, he, he had a lot of other concepts like that about, about just PR 101 that I've certainly carried with me. So I wouldn't characterize that exactly as leadership, but it was thought leadership in a way of just understanding how to communicate to the media and the discipline of what it was to, to, to really make an impact beyond just asking people for favors, but to, to come up with a good story. Then in terms of the line of work that I'm in now and for the last 15 years, which is personal management, I certainly uh, always look at Peter Grant Led Zeppelin's manager as a boss that I had that that really uh, left some lessons behind. He was a complicated guy, tough guy, good to me though I have to say, and good for Led Zeppelin uh, in terms of his belief in them. And his mantra was, uh, is, "Can I curse on this podcast?" Of course, or, you know uh, his his mantra was. Uh, it doesn't matter what the fuck anyone else cares about. It doesn't matter what the record company says. It doesn't matter what the promoter says. It doesn't matter what the media says. All that matters is what the band says. <laughs> and uh, if the band is Led Zeppelin, I think that's, uh, that, was the, that was not just the spiritual or an artistic reality. That was the business reality. You know, So understanding the centrality of the artist in the context of the music business... And, and to ally yourself with that, 
that was certainly something that uh, has stuck with me. And then in terms of the idea of how to be a boss, which is, I think, really a lot of the question, certainly working for Doug Morris, you know, uh, he was he, he, he hired me at Atlantic and then promoted me to run Warner Brothers, you know, made me president of Atlantic and chairman of Warner Brothers Records, the two jobs that changed my life in terms of my status in the business. And, um, you know, he, he was someone who um, would walk around the offices of Atlantic uh, asking everyone how their weekend was. He, 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 he liked, uh, he would fight to pay his people more. He engendered tremendous loyalty. And, and then the trade-off was he expected a re- loyalty in return and, you know, had a very relentless kind of a work ethic. But just kind of watching him operate uh, was, another, was another important role model. And then finally, the fourth boss that I would say I learned from was Alon Levy, who was the CEO of Polygram Worldwide, who hired me to run Mercury Records. And, and he just had, a, you know, a tremendous uh, grasp of detail. Uh, of every aspect of the business and uh, you know again just through osmosis I hopefully picked up some of his his um, skills in that in in that area but uh, those are the bosses I had that uh, left me better than when I joined them so I don't know if that's exactly the answer to the question but that's the only one I can think of so I was thinking about uh, your varied roles and your interaction with your artists. Have you ever gotten good at having a premonition when the phone rings, knowing it might not be something good on the other end from the call from an artist at that time? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, 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 um, I'm not quite sure how to answer that. I mean, I think as a manager is the role where where I think you have the closest relationship with the artist because you're really working for them in all aspects of their life and that's been what I've done the last dozen years or so and I did it earlier in my career too uh, for a period of time uh, and uh, you know uh, I think I think if you're close you, you can develop a sense of how they're feeling and what what might be a problem, but I I, I, I wouldn't say I've had a premonition, but uh, and and the, the one or two examples I can think of, I really wouldn't particularly want to talk about because they involve you know sad things, but but I do think that when you're working with an artist the way many managers do and the way I do, you really are tuned into their feelings in a way that you you kind of you kind of get a sense of when they might be worried about something or upset or something like that. So uh, there is a little bit of ESP involved, but I don't know that it rises to the level of a premonition. So when you think of the qualities of uh, artists that you've been around over your career, what are some of the qualities that you feel make them successful, if you could boil a few of them down? Well, um Obviously, the first one is talent. You can't create that with willpower. So somebody like Kurt Cobain or Steve Earle or, you know, Bonnie Raitt or some of the people I've worked with, I mean, they just, they, they, they had tremendous natural gifts. Not everyone who's talented is successful, but it's hard to be successful without 
you know, having talent. Uh, then uh, certainly a desire to be successful. I don't, I've never seen anyone become successful by accident. Some people it came easier to and some harder to, but there are so many obstacles uh, in, 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 in the entertainment business, whether it's getting exposure, whether it's getting paid for what you do, whether it's uh, trying to convince people to support what you do, uh, not to mention the physical rigors of things like touring, uh, that the people that are successful all have a, a work ethic, even if they may be undisciplined in some aspects of their personal life. They, 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 they show up for shows, and they generally, the people I've worked with have been pretty disciplined about dealing with the, the, making, motivating the people around them to support them, whether it's people in the media or people at a record company or crew or other musicians and stuff like that. And then finally, perseverance, because uh, with very few exceptions, there's a lot of setbacks and you've got to be willing to get off the proverbial canvas and, and, and go at it time and time again in, in, in order to make it, you know. So I, I think um, talent is the first threshold, but strong worth ethic, discipline and a, and a, and a, and a sort of a, a, a drive to be successful. Uh, you, you know, is needed also. Ruth Gordon, the late former movie star and screenwriter of the 30s and 40s, I saw her on a talk show once and she said, to make it a show business is not enough to have talent, you also have to have a talent for having talent. So I kind of know what she means uh, and uh, you kind of sense that. There are some people that are talented that you just can see they're self-sabotagers and other people that have a gleam in their eye and you just know nothing's going to stop them. What's the current state of the music industry, and where do you think the future of the music industry is headed? Well, first of all, the music industry is really not the right way I would describe it. I think it's industries plural, because there's certainly there's the recording business, which is usually what people mean when they say the music business, but there's this other giant business, the, the live entertainment business, concerts, that uh, for a lot of artists, they make most of their money. I mean, someone like Bruce Springsteen makes a lot more money touring right now than he does from records. Uh, Rolling Stones, same thing, the biggest touring acts in the world. So I think the live business um, is, is, is not that different from what it's been over the last 50 years, except there is this audience of people over 40 who will pay more money for tickets than ever was the case with previous generations because the love affair of sort of people over 40 and artists, people who came of age in the rock era uh, have an emotional connection to more artists than people did of the previous generation. Previous generation, you had a couple of people, uh, Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra come to mind that were able to keep careers going because people just wanted to see them. But there's like 50 rock artists like that where people will pay hundreds of dollars to, to see them. So that's a, that's a change. But the basic business model is the same. How much are the ticket prices? How many seats are there? How much did you sell of that? What goes to rent? What goes to marketing? And what goes to the person who took the financial risk, the promoter? And what goes to the artist and for quite some time certainly and Led Zeppelin's manager Peter Grant was the one who changed the paradigm for quite a long time you know artists have gotten in the ballpark of 90% of the of the, of, of the profits from concerts uh, there's other fees on top they claw back some money and ticket fees or servicing fees or what they make from merch but that business model is pretty is pretty much the same obviously COVID had a dramatic effect on that business and 
there's still some after effects from it in terms of I think there's certain people that aren't going to go to concerts again that went before but it's pretty much uh, pretty much the same it's it's probably more international than it's ever been I mean I don't think there's going to be too many shows in Moscow in the next few years and that was actually a place you could go and do gigs for for years and I don't know what China's going to be like for concerts but generally speaking uh, you know uh Latin America, some parts of Africa, Europe in particular, Australia, Canada, the United States, these are, it's, it's a global business. The record business, the recording business, uh, and when it includes the, the way people make money from songwriting, so-called music publishing, uh, has changed completely with the advent of streaming, and no one, uh, like, I'm not the person who can predict what's going to happen next, I'm not a technically sophisticated I just try to understand on behalf of the people I represent uh, what the playing field is you know today and today streaming is the main way people are, are absorbing music you know uh, uh, it's biased in favor of people with the uh, the way the money is divided up is biased in favor of people with younger audiences because a 12 year old might want to listen to the same song 30 times a day and people my age once a day is probably enough but we're still paying our $10 a month or whatever it is so you know there's there's the algorithm has some built in biases that we just have to live with uh, it's, it's a good playing field if you have a catalog because the multiples as they say what people will pay to buy catalogs of songs or recordings is, is at a high point but if you're if you're just on your way up uh you know, or in the middle, middle, uh, it's, it's it's not as good as it was uh, 20 years ago. But uh, business keeps changing, technology keeps changing. One thing I think is not changed is the emotional connection between fans and the music and the music artists that they like. How that's monetized changes. The business model changes. How to market it changes. But the essential relationship between a fan and music, I think, is is exactly the same. And the job of those of us in the business is to to figure out how to how to get paid for that and how to get artists paid for that, you know. But but the 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 soul of the business is the same, but the mechanics of the recording part of it is just completely different than it was, and in a million different ways, you know. Do you have a position on what AI is going to do to the business? Uh, no, um, I you know I I think um, I don't know what AI is going to do. Uh, it's obviously the big subject of conversation the last few months since ChatGPT debuted, and uh, there's all sorts of uh, anxiety about it. will it marginalize certain people and eliminate jobs. And uh, I would imagine it's you know there's certain kinds of of music that uh, I think probably a computer could create in a competitive way um, uh, and th- then there's a certain kind that I think it couldn't you know and uh, I think again the live business is going to be less affected by it because the people are paying for that experience whether it's Taylor Swift or Bruce Springsteen or Beyonce it's about being in the room with that particular human being uh, and with their fans, and that is not affected by it in terms of uh, what people are going to dance to or sing along to. Uh, you know, I, I would imagine that it'll. You know, AI might create might create some catchy hooks. You know, uh, it's another tool for artists. Also, the same way uh, synthesizer became a tool for artists, Pro Tools became a tool for artists. So I think there'll be artists that use it as a tool. The way. 
the great artists throughout history have done. There'll be certain people that maybe uh, uh, have been doing a certain kind of work that uh, they won't be able to do anymore, like what happens with technology. But, uh, you know, uh, the kind of artists I work with, um, which are very personal artists who are kind of taking their self-expression, people like Steve Earle or Mike Scott of the Waterboys or, you know, I think of other, other artists that I don't work with but who I admire, you know, in that category. Uh, you know, I, I think it's just another tool for them to use, but the relationship between them and their fans is not going to be adversely affected by it. But it's, it's going to change things in ways that smarter people than me will have to articulate. You know, I'm, uh, I'm uh, <laughs> an old fart, and, but I, I'm not scared of it. I'm, I'm curious about it. There's also, by the way, not just artificial intelligence. There's also artificial stupidity. You know, these algorithms are still only as good as the human beings that create them and they make mistakes I, I mean I went on ChatGBT and just asked for them to describe my own career uh, just curious what it would say and it made a significant mistake now I'm sure they'll get the bugs out of it but uh, you know uh, look it's a new tool just like uh, computers were and smartphones were and it's going to make some people feel very old and other people are going to use it as a tool and do things they couldn't do before same thing with uh, the world of, uh, of uh, virtual reality uh, you know that's going to be a tool for some artists you know it's not going to replace the desire to go see sports or a concert live but you know uh, it took stereo quite a while before people like the Beatles knew how to use it as an artistic tool but usually as these new tools emerge, creative geniuses figure out how to make art out of it. And I'm sure that'll be this case with some of the various tributary. AI is kind of a catch-all for a lot of different computer-generated things. So you mentioned the live performance aspect of things. You've been to so many live performances in your life. Are there any in particular that really stick out to you that are just embedded so deeply in your brain that you'll never forget it? Well, it, it, when you're in the business, you, you have two categories. There's people I've worked with, and there's just shown I've, shows I've seen. So, uh, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm very enamored of the people I work with. So let's just take them off of the, that category because it's kind of it's kind of distorted by my own uh, relationship with them and my self-interest. Um, certainly, I mean, Springsteen, I've never seen him do a bad show. He's certainly one of the greatest, if not the greatest, rock performer. Um, I, when I first saw Bette Midler, I thought it was one of the most amazing performers I'd ever seen. Uh, that still stands out in my mind. When I go back earlier in my life, uh, when I was just starting as a so-called rock critic, I mean, the first time I saw Loudon Wainwright III, uh, it just blew my mind. That, that really, I, I didn't know that somebody, it was so many years after Dylan had, had, had created a scene in the village and then left it, uh, that somebody could still do that. Same with the first time I saw Christopherson or John Prine. Those were just people I was lucky enough to see in my early 20s when they were still playing clubs. Um, so, you know, if you'd ask me tomorrow, I'd probably come up with a different list. But the first time I saw B.B. King, I was just a kid. I was able to get a ticket and saw him at the Village Gate. It was just that I could be in the room with B.B. King while he was playing the guitar. But 
I, I don't know that that was, it was not just about him, although he was very consistently great, it was about who I was at that moment, and it was so new to me to be able to see live music, you know. Uh, but on any given night, I thought Nirvana was very consistent as a live band. Um, Steve Earle is extraordinarily consistent. The Waterboys are extraordinarily consistent. Martha Wainwright, who I've worked with for years, amazing live performer. Again, I am biased. But of the people I haven't worked with, it's the people I mentioned, I guess, are what st stuck in my head when you asked me the question. So you mentioned Phil Oaks earlier. Yeah. And I think of, you know, activism, obviously. And I think of today's times with artists and activism. Are you disappointed there's not enough activism today with musicians? No, no, I feel the opposite. I mean, I actually wrote a book about the 2020 election called Bloody Crossroads 2020, Art, Entertainment, and Resistance to Trump, where I really spent a lot of time, and a lot of it was written during lockdown, during the COVID period, where I was just documenting all the different artists that were commenting on politics at that time. and. Uh, it was much more than at any other time, in my observation. I mean, to have Taylor Swift and Cardi B, the biggest pop acts in the world, in America anyway, weighing in so clearly and explicitly about an election. I never saw Mariah Carey or Madonna doing that. I never saw the Rolling Stones doing that. I never saw the Beatles doing it. I saw John Lennon, as an individual, was, was politically outspoken in, in, in his day. Uh, and I think the range of people who weighed in during that period, from Lucinda Williams, Roseanne Cash, I mean, it's an incredibly long list. So I, I think that the younger generation of artists, the people that kind of had to deal with the Trump era in particular, are more politically engaged than the people were in the 60s. And my generation likes to romanticize political activism of the 60s and lump it in with rock and roll and Woodstock Festival and said love and peace peace, 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 and there was a Vietnam War going on, but there was only a handful of artists that were really explicitly engaged in the anti-war protests. The Jefferson Airplane were, uh, the uh, Crosby Stills Nash did Ohio, obviously, uh, Country Joe and the Fish. Uh, Dylan, the early part of Dylan's career was political, and then he stopped writing that many political songs. He'd occasionally return to the subject. I loved Phil Oaks. It was my first favorite artist. He wasn't a mass appeal artist, but he was he was a remarkable, um, you know. But but I, I don't, uh, you know. The the Jimi Hendrix never did a political song. Janis Joplin never did a political song. The Grateful Dead, you know, pretty apolitical. Later they'd show up for an environmental event or something. Uh, you know, a lot of the big artists of the '60s were were not particularly political. Oh. I just have to flash back, though, when I'm talking about great shows that I've ever seen. Uh, Leonard Cohen, during the last decade of his life, every time I saw him, it was like going to church. I mean, those live shows during that period of his life, to me, were definitely at the top of the list of shows for, for me personally that really moved me deeply. Do you have some favorite venues that you've seen shows or had artists at, or is it too big of a list? Well, I mean, I'm a great fan of the City Winery. I think what Michael Dorff has done is incredible. He's created a space for uh, the audience of, with the sound and the, the, the way things are presented there. It's just, it's, it's, it's to me way better as an experience as a fan than the previous generations of clubs ever had. I mean, I, I was, um, <clears throat> you know, to me, clubs are, most of the legendary clubs are legendary not because of the real estate or 
the physical space or the way that people were because of who played there. Like CBGB's very famous because the Ramones and Patti Smith and television talking heads and blonde, they all played there at a moment when they didn't have other places to play. And Hilly Crystal certainly uh, had an incredibly good taste to give those artists a platform, but it was not a pleasant place physically to be. Bottom line, legendary shows there. I loved going to the bottom line. I was always treated incredibly well there by Alan Pepper, who ran it. Um, you know, but I, I like the food at the City Winery a lot better. You know, I mean, uh, uh, Fillmore East was a big deal to me in my beginning of my career. It was an incredible privilege to be able to go there, to get tickets there. Uh, I thought that had a special quality to it, but that again had a lot to do with the cult, the musical culture of the times. But Bill Graham had a vision about what a rock show should be that was distinctive from other promoters, and it was you could feel it at the Fillmore East and and at the Fillmore West. I just lived in New York, so uh, though, but but uh, but uh, you know, I think <laughs> the artists are a lot more important than where they play. Right. I love the city wineries, especially how it's it's in all. Oh, the it's other in markets. so many cities. The one I've been, I haven't been to all of them, but I've been to one in Chicago and Nashville. Both fantastic rooms, and I, I, I hear nothing but good things. I haven't been to all of them yet, but uh, I think that's really created a new category for artists and audiences that uh, I'm a, very much appreciate right now. Yeah. So when you think of all of your roles through your career. It's varied in terms of what you've done. Yeah, yeah. Um, has each one of those roles continued to serve you today in terms of how you uh, you lead and work and manage? I, I think, you know, um, the fact that I worked at and ran record companies for six years helps me understand what people at record companies are going through at any given moment in time. I think that's a, a bit of a help. I think the fact that I was a publicist certainly allows me to communicate, I think, on a pretty high level with publicists and to help strategize in that area. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think that those everybody who's a manager uh, did something else first, and they all bring whatever they did to the job. So, those are my backgrounds. I think I think they help inform what I do now. Yeah. So, grunge really you were at the the, the beginning of the birth of. Um, you couldn't have realized how significant it was at the moment in time you were in, could you? Well, I think you're talking about really Nirvana. That's my claim to fame. I, I, I've always known that if there's ever an obituary of me, it's likely to say ex-Nirvana manager and if it says anything about my my work, because it was such a privilege to work with that band at that time. Um, and, uh, you know, Kurt Cobain did not, was not crazy about the word grunge. You know, it was kind of a marketing word. It served the purpose of some of the you know, record companies and in, in Seattle, Sub Pop in particular, and the media liked it, and I guess it was supposed to be some uh, hybrid between heavy metal and punk. Um, you know, he was not crazy about thinking that people were putting him in a category. He saw himself as an individual artist who drew on a lot of different influences but invented something 
of his own, which I think history has proven to be true. But but it, it, I certainly didn't know Nirvana was going to be as big as they were when I first met them and decided to manage them. It happened very quickly, though. I, I also, if I could plug it, I did write a book about working with Kurt called "Serving the Servant" that kind of documents that whole thing from because uh, I, I worked with them from you know when they before they were they'd done the one indie record and through Nevermind and the, you know until until Kurt died. Um, it happened very very fast because the song "Smells Like Teen, Teen Spirit" happened very fast. I mean, there's no mystery about what the inflection point was. That song and the video that accompanied it, you know, one, one you know in in uh, August of, in, in July of 1991, no one knew about it except a few of us who worked with the band. And by the end of the year, it was the number one record, not just in America, but all over the world. And so, so and, and, and it was not just a hit song, it was a song that was a vehicle for a whole uh, punk subculture that had been uh, a niche audience and the, and, the, and the graphics, language, and attitudes of that then became, you know, mainstream. And, you know, right behind it came Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. Uh, you know, uh, never mind, though, was the one that broke the door open and set a climate where, you know, the year earlier, radio, commercial rock radio uh, was not interested in any... Uh, Anything with the word punk in it, and a year later, you know, it was it was at the center of the programming of some of the big stations like K Rock and others around the country. So, so that was an inflection point that happened very very fast. So certainly, when I first was working with Nirvana, I had no idea it was going to be a pop global phenomenon. I knew they were great. I knew Kurt's voice and his songwriting set him apart from the other artists that were popular in the punk subculture and I felt it was going to be very successful within that genre but I didn't know it was going to so quickly transcend the genre I don't think any of us did but we knew he was something special all you had to do was see him on stage once and you knew this was a special person and he wrote hooks, he wrote songs most punk artists didn't write those kind of songs that had choruses that you could hum along to but still had that rebelliousness, that energy, and that raw emotionalism of punk. He, he, he created a, a, you know, he, again, he had his influences. He was influenced by the Pixies and by a number of other artists, but he took it to a whole other level. So you mentioned uh, the breakout of, obviously, Nirvana and uh, the radio aspect of that. Um, how do you feel about radio today? Well, um, it's got a lot of competition it didn't used to have. You can listen to uh, Apple Music or Spotify in the car. It's built into it. You know, my new plug-in hybrid, Apple's just built into it, you know. Uh, so it's got the competition of streaming, which I think is a huge problem if you're trying to get people to listen to music. You know, there's no commercials. Let's start with that. And you can hear whatever you want. It's also, uh, I'm a, look, I'm going to admit, I hope this doesn't violate the vibe of what you do, but I'm also a fan of what Sirius does. I think they provide programming that's more customized than what a commercial radio station can do because of the nature of the technology and the nature of the people who subscribe to it. So I think it's incredibly challenging for commercial radio stations to 
to, to deal in that. I don't envy the people who have to program and figure out, you know, how to get the ratings that they need to get to, you know, keep the parent company happy. And it's a very, very challenging thing for music. Obviously, radio still is uh, unique when it comes to uh, news and sports. And I think talk radio for people that are in the car, you know, there's a certain significant portion of commuters, especially older ones who, who just aesthetically, that's what they want to listen to. But I think for music radio, it's really, really challenging. And it takes uh, people. Uh, I'm glad I'm not the one who has to figure out how to make a music radio station work. But, you know, uh, people in America and all around the world spend a lot of their time in cars. And uh, there is a different experience with the radio. There's the opportunity to be surprised, you know, by what the next song is going to be. So as much fun as it is to pick your own songs, it's, there's a certain masturbatory quality to that as opposed to just trusting somebody else to program it and to introduce the songs. And I, I still like uh, listening uh, to uh, certain stations because I want to hear the curation of, of, of somebody who's listened to a lot more stuff than I have, you know, and I think it's, uh, there are certain geniuses in programming that are able to do that in a way that really gets a big enough audience for them to keep doing it. But it's incredibly challenging compared to the way it was uh, before the digital age. Would Air America, if it were still around, you were CEO of it, obviously, um, would, it, would it be successful now, in your opinion? Well, Air America had a lot of problems that I don't want to go into, but it was under chronically underfunded from the beginning. But I think if Al Franken, who was the flagship person at Air America, wanted to do a radio show, I think he could have a successful radio show right now. There's no question in my mind. He got good ratings. He wasn't getting as big ratings as Rush Limbaugh did, but he came closer than you would think. He had a real gift for it. Uh, if Rachel Maddow, who was on Air America, wanted to do a radio show now, I think she'd find an audience, but she seems to be doing quite well on television. Uh, so those are certainly two two particular people that I, I, I think would do just fine if they wanted to do a radio show now. It's, you know, uh, there's something, again, called talent that transcends ideology. There are people that are just talented at communicating as broadcasters and... Uh, uh, you know, I, I think we had a couple of them. We, we didn't have an infrastructure that had any kind of a business plan that could give it a chance to blossom as a network, but it produced it produced some notable people, the two I mentioned. And, of course, Mark Marin, uh, who I, you know, had, had to... Uh, the unpleasant task of having to cancel his show because it was losing money, not his fault. It was just the people that were supposed to fund the place didn't come up with, with the money and, and, and I don't think he likes me very much as a result of the role I was required to play then but what a success he's had as a podcaster. I mean, it's one of the most successful podcasts. No disrespect to this podcast but I would imagine, no disrespect taken. I would imagine you'd be happy to get his numbers oh, yeah. and, uh, and uh, you know, so I, I think that uh, uh, you know, we have a mutual friend who you mentioned before we started this, John Sinton, who picked all of those people. And, you know, I think he's, uh, you know, deserves a lot of credit for his judgment as a as a programmer in, in, in giving those people a platform, uh, none of whom had done radio before, and all of whom are kind of household names today. So that was a, a failed business for reasons that aren't worth going into in a conversation like this. Happy to have a different conversation about that 
but uh, but it did it did uh, it did unearth some very very significant talent. So in closing, um, you've done so much. What's on your roadmap, either for this company or personally, that you haven't done? Well, I'm a one day at a time guy, especially as I get older. Uh, I'm just trying to do a good job every day. Uh, you know, I really love the people I work with. I've had a parallel career as a writer. I've published five books, and I'm starting to work on another one, but it's too early to talk about it. Uh, I just want to do. I, 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 I you know, somebody. Uh, Doug Morris, who I mentioned earlier, who has hired me to be president of Atlantic and who was probably the preeminent record executive of the last 30 or 40 years. He ran uh, Universal, Warners, and Sony. You know, he, wore, he ran all the majors. No one's ever done that. You know, he's like the G-O-A-T in terms of what he accomplished. At one point, he had said to me, because he was older than me, you know, he said, you know, first part of your career, you want to get somewhere. And the second part, you just want to stay there, you know. <laughs> and uh, I didn't understand what he meant then because I was trying to get somewhere, but I sure understand it now. I, I, my goal is to just be able to stay involved with artists, to be part of this business, uh, and, uh, and each project has its own uh, goals attached to it, and those become my goals. I'm so grateful that you uh, took the time to be on uh, the podcast. So flattered that you wanted me, man. Thank you. Thank you so much. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Do you love fashion? Do you love getting compliments on how well you're dressed? Are you always seeking the latest trends? Then we're talking to you. BostonProper.com is your fashion destination and the only place to go for all those nods, head turns, and new styles. No matter the day, season, or occasion, Boston Proper has what you're looking for. Sophisticated, confident clothing designed to flatter and get noticed. So visit BostonProper.com now and start creating your perfect wardrobe. Boston Proper. Wear it like no one else. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.